Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. As COVID-19 continues to surge across much of upstate New York, there is a new development. The pandemic has now entered the race for governor. Congressman Tom Suozzi threw his hat in the ring this week, becoming the fourth Democrat to enter the race. And he didn't waste any time going after current governor Kathy Hochul on the state's response to COVID-19. Attorney General Letitia James, who's also running for governor, did the same the week of Thanksgiving. Both say the state could be doing more to stop the spread, like a targeted approach in hotspots and more access to testing. But Hochul said this week that it isn't like last April and that the state shouldn't treat it that way. I'm not prepared to shut down schools or the economy at this time, no. That is not a necessary response. That would be considered an overreaction to the fact that this is not our first, second, or third. It's our fourth variant. We're dealing with it. And I'm sure that's just the first of many disagreements that we'll see during the campaign. Let's talk about that and more with Politico's Bill Mahoney and our own Daryl Camp. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you. So Swazi's in the race, Bill. That brings us to four. Swazi's considered more of a moderate Democrat, kind of kind of like a Kathy Hochul Democrat as opposed to like a Tish James Democrat, which we view as a little bit further to the left sometimes. What does this mean for the race for governor? Is it a blow to Hochul? It probably doesn't help her. Um, it's unclear um, how much of an impact it will actually have. So far, he hasn't registered too much in the polls, and he's got a ways to go before many people know his name throughout the state. But he is running in a lane that's to the right of her, as you mentioned, which makes it a little bit trickier because we've kind of had Jumani Williams and Tish James running to her left, and she's been moving to kind of claim the rightmost 60% of the party, which is more than enough for a majority, which... yeah. But if he's inching his way between the far right and the center of the party um, and her, where she's kind of at, then that does cut into the share of the party she can presumably claim. And it's pretty clear that's the path that he's setting. He says he's not running as a moderate. He says he's not running in the Cuomo lane, but he is running in the Andrew Cuomo lane of the Democratic Party. Yes, that is. I, I see him very ideologically like Andrew Cuomo. Hopefully he doesn't share other traits of Andrew Cuomo. Well, I guess we'll wait to see. Daryl, um, you have spent the week talking to political analysts about this race for governor. Mm -hmm. What's the status right now? It's very early. I mean, I don't know if anybody necessarily has a leg up aside yep. from the current governor because she's not an incumbent technically because she rose to the seat, mm -hmm. but they typically have the advantage and she has that power of being in office and doing things the next couple of months. What have yeah. analysts told you? Basically exactly what you just said. It is way too early to call a real favorite, but the early favorite is Kathy Hochul. And it seems like dead last is a coin flip between uh, Tom Swazi and Jumani Williams, mostly because in a sense, there are two primaries happening simultaneously. It is the moderate Democrats and you have the progressive Democrats. And between those two groups, people are going to choose their favorites and then they're going to narrow it down. So it's kind of like a, a semifinal more or less. So I think after the conventions next year, we'll have a better idea of what's going on. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point of the Tish versus Jumani and the Hochul versus Swazi kind of things. At the end of the day, I... I guess it would depend if any of them drop out at some point, if polling looks really bad for one of them. Uh, I think maybe the one with the least name recognition might actually be Tom Swasey right now. He might have the most difficult path. Granted, he does probably share more characteristics with winners of past gubernatorial primaries than anybody else in the field. And he is running in the lane that Andrew Cuomo won on. 
But that being said, there are basically two paths to get on the ballot. Um, one, you can get support from 25% of the members at the convention, or two, you can just collect petitions to get on there. Collecting mm -hmm. petitions, either you need a lot of money and basically drain down the resources of your campaign and not leave a lot of money for advertisements or things like that, or have a lot of volunteers in pretty much every corner of the state who are willing to go out and collect petitions for you. Jumani Williams is probably more likely to have that than Tom Swazi. Yeah. Um, he has supporters in places like Buffalo and Rochester and Syracuse. I know Tom Swazi's begun to reach out to people in Buffalo. I was there when he was campaigning for Byron Brown a month ago. But I just don't know if there's you know this base of people in Binghamton who are ready to knock on doors to get Tom Swazi on the ballot yet. Um, there's time for that to change. Certainly he could pull that together by March. But mm -hmm. Jumani Williams probably has that now, and that probably makes him... If we're going with the way too early rankings of where the candidates stand, I would probably place him in third place at the moment, with once again the caveat that we are a long ways away and there's plenty of room for things to change. Yeah, I think so too. I think that you can't discount the organizing power of the far left faction of the party. I mean, as you said, Byron Brown, we saw in the Buffalo mayor's race that he, uh, some would say, was complacent. He, he really just kind of thought that he was going to coast to victory in that primary, whereas India Walton organized these Democrats and was able to win that out. Uh, it's going to be a really interesting dynamic there. Um, but it is really early, so I don't want to opine on this way too much. Let's talk about the transcripts that were released this week. The AG released some more transcripts from her probe into Andrew Cuomo and the sexual harassment allegations. We now have testimony from Melissa DeRosa, who, is the, who was the secretary to the governor, the highest ranking unelected position in government, which as a party, his had top, uh, comms person, other staffers. Bill, what was your big takeaway from this, reading these transcripts and uh, going through all of it? I should say, I don't know if any of us had read all of them. It, it's thousands of pages. Yeah. I don't think there was anything too surprising in this round. This was largely the Cuomo people who we heard talking anytime Cuomo had a press conference pretty much in the spring, summer. Right. But I, the one thing that this reinforced is that pretty much everybody who worked for him and was part of his circle stood by him throughout this, and there was no... We, we saw the text between some of his top aides and advisors, and there wasn't a whole lot of stuff like, maybe he should resign, maybe he should um, apologize and admit guilt. Like, it was all just like, how shall we band together and destroy anybody who's trying to take him down? And they were very loyal with him right up to the end. And even when they were doing these interviews, most of them were very willing to stick by the former governor. Yeah, what, a, what an interesting dynamic in his inner circle. We had some people like uh, Liz Smith, who is a communications advisor, who actually advised Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign and then went on to help Andrew Cuomo during this scandal time. She was kind of advising them to cool down a little bit, whereas uh, Melissa DeRosa really, really wanted to go hard against these women and find ways to discredit their allegations. It, that was interesting to me. And, and what, was, what I took away from this is it was really an inside look into their strategy to discredit the women and try to get the governor's public image more positive. Um, Daryl, you were watching the Cuomo videos throughout the week. Mm -hmm. What did you take away from this? More or less what his detractors said about him personally, about his ego. If you look at the context in those videos, you go, okay, I can kind of understand that. The transcripts don't necessarily translate entirely to his frame of mind and the, the intonation, you can't pick up on that in just words. And one of the viral moments from this week, obviously, was Jim Malatris. We, uh, in his relation to the sexual harassment allegations in a loose way, the transcripts were from before that, but people are now questioning whether or not he is fit to run SUNY. And 
uh, about a month ago when the charges against Cuomo were released. I had said that there was a chance that those could restore faith in institutions, but it was all a dream, honestly, because mm -hmm. at this point it seems like the more you read the transcripts and the more you see how much the inner circle is insulated, you realize, oh no, even now, Jim is still defending, in a sense, the Cuomo administration. He's a wanted man and everybody knows, so obviously Kathy Hochul doesn't have the power to remove him. That's up to the SUNY board, but pressure is going to mount because it's an election year, so at some point she's going to have to go, hey, I said I would drain the swamp, so to speak, so it's about that time. Yeah, yeah. I I'm glad you mentioned that she can't remove him. That's an important point. It's up to the SUNY board. We do have to leave it there. Uh, we have the transcripts on our website. We'll link to them for everybody there. But Politico's Bill Mahoney and our own Daryl Camp. Thank you both. All right, moving on now to a look at climate change and how New York is responding. About two years ago, New York set a series of goals related to climate change, and they're really ambitious. Like one requires zero emissions electricity by 2040. And now, the state is drafting a plan on how to achieve those goals. It's called a scoping plan. The state's Climate Action Council is creating that plan and ways to transition New York away from fossil fuels. And a big part of that plan is moving away from gas-powered vehicles and investing in renewable energy. State DEC Commissioner Basil Segos and NYSERDA President Doreen Harris are heading up that strategy. We spoke this week about where we are and what's ahead in New York. Basil and Doreen, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Thanks, Dan. Of course. This is a really important moment in terms of climate, especially in New York. We have the Climate Action Council, of which both of you are co-chairs, and we have the council coming up with something called a scoping plan, which is basically the plan that we have to create to get to this renewable, clean future of lower emissions and greener technology infrastructure. I think the scoping plan is supposed to be decided sometime soon. Basil, can you give us an update on that? What does it look like right now? That's right. Well, we've been receiving from our panels, our advisory panels, recommendations for the past few months. And all of that is going into a draft report, which we're working on with the Climate Action Council, will be released to the public on the 31st of December of this year. And then it effectively goes out for public comment for the ensuing 12 months. Uh, we have a series of probably six public hearings around the state. And uh, we'll be receiving undoubtedly thousands of comments from the public everyone concerned about uh, uh, you know, what, what issue um, of, of reducing emissions, uh, what technologies can be put into place, how we'll pay for it. We'll hear about all that over the coming 12 months. So let's expand on that a little bit. Doreen, what goes into this plan? Like what kind of strategies are we looking at to get to this greener future where we have these goals that we've set 2030, 2050 in terms of reduction of emissions and electric vehicles, all of these good things. So what, what's part of that strategy? What goes into this plan? Without revealing what the plan actually is, of course, because <laughs> sure. you still have to vote on it. It is, and it's in draft form for a very important reason to obtain that comment that, that Basil um, referenced. But the plan is laying out the pathways to get from here to there, and New York does have some of the most aggressive climate policies in place through the Climate Act. 85% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 is the sort of uh, the North Star for our work, and when you think about it, what this plan is doing is it's saying, here's how you can achieve those goals. So we have the recommendations from experts who say, here's how you decarbonize the power grid. Here's how you clean the transportation sector, sector by sector, um, mm. moving forward. So the scoping plan pulls that all together. 
but it also looks at the costs and benefits of doing so. Um, and that's an analysis we've presented recently to the Climate Action Council. And then it also looks at some of the trade-offs. Um, in large part, probably 90% of the pathways are the same to get from here to there, but then there are some decisions we're going to have to make to get to what I would call the last mile of that decarbonization pathway. So you mentioned the sectors, and there's a lot of different things to think about here, from transportation to heating our homes, all these good things. Is there one that is worse than others in terms of emissions? I, I have a feeling it's our cars that we're driving, but you tell me. According to the analysis and, and using the accounting framework that we're required to through the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, it's actually buildings. Um, buildings oh. are one of the largest contributors. Transportation is right up there too, certainly. Um, the two of them together are a majority of our emissions. Um, and, and frankly, some of the biggest challenges we have in achieving our goals. So buildings in terms of heating those buildings and electricity? Correct. Um, okay. Primarily heating and cooling um, is, is the majority of the emissions from a building. That's so interesting. I would have thought right off the bat that it was the cars on the highway because you just see them every day. Every time I look at a car, I'm just like, how? what's going on with that car? How dirty is it making this environment? Obviously not one single car, but Basil, do you have any ideas on how to tackle that problem in terms of buildings? Well, let's go to cars first. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a goal from the state, and I think it's a mandate, that we have to go full electric That's by right. 2035, am Correct. I right with that? How do we do that in terms of transitioning away from these mm. gas-powered cars, these diesel-powered vehicles, and going to that full electric in less than two decades? Right. Great question. I think that transition is very much underway already. You know, you look back 10 years ago, we had very limited options. We talked hybrid. A hybrid car was the most advanced technology. Now, it's the electric vehicle, and those are becoming far cheaper. You see them everywhere. There's more choice uh, for the consumer. And we've been spending an enormous amount of time and resources in building out that, that, that network, right, that charging network statewide. Uh, and, and also working with the public on getting them less concerned about this thing called range anxiety, right? Mm. When you get in your car and you have to worry about, can you make that 200-mile drive? Are you going to be able to get a charge along the way? Much of that is communications, honestly, is getting people comfortable with the idea of getting into a different kind of a vehicle. So that's something we've been putting an enormous amount of time into. So the personal uh, transportation, personal vehicles, automobiles, I think in 10 years won't even be a question that there's going to be a significant amount of choice and really will be either at or ahead of our goal by 2035. The bigger issue is going to be larger vehicles, medium and heavy-duty vehicles, yeah. right? The trucks rumbling through streets. You know, we talk about buildings being a big impact in, in, in terms of our overall carbon emissions. But if you look at uh, the, the trucks that rumble through neighborhoods, that's often not just a climate issue. That's a health issue, mm -hmm. right? The South Bronx, Harlem, parts of uh, uh, South Albany, where you have high emissions that creates real issues for people's lives. So that's a sector we need to work across the 50 states uh, to bring as many of those good practices into bear here. We signed a medium heavy duty vehicle uh, ag agreement with other states, California in particular, uh, which will help electrify that sector, which is going to be a lot more challenging. But I think Ultimately, the technologies now that we're seeing coming online is to make that possible sooner than later. You know, I was looking at buying an electric vehicle mm. a few months back. I, I was really excited about it. Cleaner, greener, love that. And then I went and looked at them, and they're so expensive. Mm. How do we get over that? You know, it's funny. I actually bought one myself this summer. Um, I, got a, I had an SUV to fit my kids, and uh, my calculus was, when my lease ran out, could I get into something that was more, more efficient, electric obviously being my choice. Um, and uh, you need to look at the entire life cycle cost. It isn't just the sticker cost of what you're paying per month. 
it's the amount that you're going to end up spending on gasoline, right? Gasoline, as you know, 355, 360 a gallon in some cases right now. The cost of owning a gas-powered vehicle at, at a cheaper sticker price is often far more than an electric vehicle at a higher sticker price right now. And I don't think that's going to change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope it does. You know, I hope they become cheaper. I hope so, too. I'd really like one. <laughs> I, I hear exciting models are coming soon from all the big companies talking about really uh, you know, family-friendly vehicles, uh, cheaper vehicles that are going to be plug-in. Friendly for my dogs. Exactly. <laughs> Doreen, let's talk about renewables for a second. So part sure. of this strategy has to be renewable energy, right? So we're looking at solar, um, wind power, geothermal, all of these things. Where, where is New York targeting that, that strategy? Are we looking at uh, uh, solar being the main driver here? I know we're investing a lot in wind energy too. Where is our focus? Sure. If you hadn't heard yet, one of the major elements of achieving these goals is electrification. Yes. Electrification of buildings, electrification of transportation, et cetera. What that means is we need a very clean grid mm. uh, in order to really achieve our outcomes. And we've been very seriously pursuing that objective for a number of years. The Climate Act certainly uh, put that into high gear, so to speak. Um, goals like 70% renewables by 2030, 100% zero emissions by 2040. That's been uh, an investment that NYSERDA has been making for a number of years, and we're really seeing that come forward in an exciting way. We're advancing all of the above. Um, we're advancing solar, we're advancing land-based wind, and we're advancing offshore wind off the coast of um, New York City and Long Island, all told, when we really look at the projects that we have under contract in delivering um, in the coming years to our grid, we're going to be at about 60% renewables when those mm. come online. So we're, we're making really, really good progress in that respect, but it's a very necessary precursor to the other objectives that we seek. Yeah, I wish I could just fast forward 20 years and see where we are because I just, I know. I just want to get there, you know? Listen, I mean, these projects, are they're big projects, they're complex projects. They take a number of years to develop responsibly and cost-effectively, but the investments we made four or five years ago are coming to fruition. Um, this summer alone, we had 20 large-scale projects under construction across upstate New York. Great. And when we look at the pipeline, there's 80 to 90 more to come. It's, it's really, really impressive. Yeah, I feel like this is just such an exciting time in terms of climate. Just in the past 10 years, I feel like things have really, mm. really developed quite yes. a bit. But we will leave it there. A lot to talk about, but can't get through all of it. Dorian Harris from NYSERDA, Basil Segos from the DEC. Thank you both so much. Thank yeah, you. So we'll know more about the state's strategy toward climate change at the end of the month, when they release it for public comment. And staying now with climate change, President Biden's Build Back Better bill is being negotiated right now in the U.S. Senate. It's already passed the House and will probably have to go back there after the Senate makes some amendments. That's if it passes at all. It's a huge bill with a price tag of $1.7 trillion. And right now, it doesn't have the votes. But Democrats are hoping to work out a deal before the end of the month. So what does that mean for climate change? Well, the bill right now would put more than $500 billion into programs to address and respond to climate change. And some of that money could filter down to New York, which has its own ambitious climate goals, as you just heard. For more on that, I turn this week to Julie Tai from the New York League of Conservation Voters. She says the bill would be a huge boost to New York, but that there's more to be done at the state level as well. Julie, thanks so much for being here, as always. Dan, thank you for having me on. Of course. 
So there's a lot going on in terms of the environment and climate change in terms of legislation, both here at the state level, but also the federal level. We saw the infrastructure bill pass and it was signed into law by President Biden. And now Congress is considering something called the Build Back Better plan, which does have some climate promises in it in terms of funding and strategy. Can you talk about that? What would we get in New York here under this bill? How would it benefit us in terms of climate? Sure. So the bipartisan infrastructure deal was really sort of the down payment that we need to really get our, our pipes going. Um, but really the much bigger climate plan is in the Build Back Better Act. And we're very excited that the House of, House of Representatives passed that. So this will really help to accelerate the, the pace of work that happens from the private sector uh, as we move forward on the clean energy front. But it also contains billions of dollars for, uh, for us to build out an EV network. There's also tax credits for families to buy electric vehicles themselves uh, that would be up to $12,500 for electric vehicles that are made in America with union labor. So really trying to incentivize how Americans transition away from fossil fuel powered vehicles to clean powered vehicles, as well as billions of dollars for making sure that our communities are resilient from flooding and heat and other types of impacts from climate change. Um, and one thing that we're super excited about uh, that's probably not getting talked about as much is funding to establish a civilian climate corps, which is very similar to AmeriCorps, but will be focused on making sure that we have climate resilient projects that are being built out across this country, something that we hope will also be used to invest in making sure that our building stock, our housing is being uh, made more energy efficient. So there's there's $550 billion of projects in there. So there's a lot of funding going on and we're very excited to see this move forward. So remind me when, because we are banning new gas powered vehicles in New York, they have to go all electric by sometime. Remind me when that is? 20, the, the, the New York adopted a law that says by 2035, you will not be able to buy uh, a fossil fuel powered vehicle for, for personal use. For medium and heavy duty, so think buses and trucks, that's for 2045. So this will help to accelerate that transition. And we need two things for that. First, we need, um, we need the infrastructure to make sure people have the opportunity to do this. And we need the incentives and the sort of the regulatory permanence that this will uh, envision uh, to make sure that the private sector has the, what they need to move forward. One of the bills that we think would be helpful to accelerate and, and combine with this uh, proposal from the federal government is a clean fuel standard here in New York. It's something that actually is also being talked about at the national level as a potential replacement for the renewable fuel standard. So it's something that we know would help to provide incentives for the private sector and for local governments and other fleets to move off of fossil fuel powered vehicles and onto clean fuels, including you know what we do in the interim time, right? Because we're going to still be selling these other vehicles, and and you know for the next 10, 20, 25 years, we want to make sure that they are reducing fossil fuel uses and pollution associated with them by moving on to clean fuels and accelerating that transition to electric vehicles. Now, we didn't see the clean fuel standard passed last year. I remember last time you were on the show, I believe that we talked about that a little bit. So teeing it up for next legislative session, how do you convince lawmakers that this is something that you want to do, a, a path to true renewable energy getting off these fossil fuels here in New York? Sure. 
Well, we've been working very hard with the sponsors and in, in, in educating uh, members of the legislature um, because we know we need to accelerate and we're not going to be able to, even with all these billions of dollars coming from the federal government, we're not going to be able to get there entirely on funding from the government. We're going to need uh, to help to make this change by having the private sector make these investments as well. And this provides market mechanisms that encourage them to do that. We, however, do want billions of dollars from the state also for addressing uh, climate change and the environment. And so we're really excited that Governor Hochul has proposed to increase the Bond Act uh, from $3 billion, which the legislature passed uh, earlier this year and is supposed to be on the ballot in 2022. Uh, Governor Hochul has proposed to raise that to $4 billion, call it the, the Clean Water, Clean Air, and Green Jobs Environmental Bond Act, which will make sure that we're getting investments uh, for uh, making our communities uh, protected from flooding, for helping to reduce urban heat island effect, for helping to protect our parks and open spaces. And we hope that some of those funds can be used to help with the transition on clean transportation and making our schools uh, more resilient, energy efficient, and on clean energy. So we have these billions of dollars maybe coming from the federal government and these billions of dollars coming from the Bond Act if voters approve it. And then we have those private incentives. All this together, is that enough for us to reach our climate goals or do we need other investments from other areas besides these public-private partnerships? I guess what I'm asking is all these resources that we're getting, do we need anything else on top of it to meet our goals? I'm, I'm thinking we probably will. <laughs> um, what that looks like yet remains to be determined, but there's a lot we need to do to transition to a green economy. Um, and we are, will see much more specifically, I think, um, some of the items that we need as the state moves forward with their scoping plan for the Climate Action Council, which will lay out in more detail what we need to do to transition the transportation sector, how we need to make our buildings more energy efficient and reduce our fossil fuel usage, how we're gonna to transition to clean manufacturing and how we're gonna make sure that we still have good jobs in New York for all those union workers who are currently working at fossil fuel powered plants, for example, to make sure that we are um, doing forward, doing so justly. Yeah, what an exciting climate friendly future that I think we are all looking forward to. It's very exciting to think about, but we will leave it there. Julie Tai from the New York League of Conservation Voters, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. So we'll see what lawmakers do with some of those ideas when they come back to Albany next month. In the meantime, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well.